0: What do you find yourself um, trying to avoid these days? Your boss? Bill collectors? <laughs> uh, how about the virus? Trying to avoid that? Wearing masks, social distancing, staying home. These can be good things to avoid. There are some things you don't want to avoid, however. Um, the expiration date and that gallon of milk that's been in your refrigerator for too long. You ever done that? <laughs> Woo! Mmm. Work deadlines, people that need us, and grief. We don't want to deal with our loss. We don't want to deal with our pain. We don't want to deal with our failures. And so we avoid them. We avoid funerals. And if we can't avoid funerals, then we'll try to sanitize them to make them less painful. And we do sorts of things to avoid those, those feelings, right? We throw ourselves into our work or into our favorite cause or... Uh, we get ourselves too busy to think about our loss. My favorite denial, when I'm going through a hard time and somebody asks me how I'm doing, I say, I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> you ever done that? Cover it up. We're in a series on the book of Psalms and we're learning how to talk to God. And what we were discovering this week is that there are a lot of the Psalms are Psalms of lament Deep sorrow, grief, and pain. Uh, Listen to David's lament in Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will the enemy triumph over me, look on me, and answer? Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. This is remarkable stuff. This is raw. This is earthy stuff. So much crying and pain. It makes us uncomfortable. I mean, if King David felt this way, if he felt God had forgotten him, well, what chance do we have? I mean, should we even say these kinds of things um, out loud? Is it okay to to complain to God? Isn't that showing a lack of faith? I mean, if we had faith, we wouldn't feel that way, right? Right? Good Christians don't cry. We're supposed to be happy. Didn't I just preach on that a couple weeks ago? (laughs) Maybe you feel like it's a sign of weakness. Maybe you feel like it's a a failing faith if you lament before God. Maybe you fear God's going to point his finger at you and say, Buck up, buddy. Come on and be strong. Stop your crying. The truth is, is that we need to lament. And we need these psalms of lament to remind us that even the most faithful saints have gone through this. I mean, look around this building. You ever notice how many boxes of Kleenexes that we have around this building? I mean, it seems like every room you walk in, there's like a half a dozen boxes of Kleenexes. What's that about? We do a lot of crying. That's okay. In fact, I am am quite sure as your pastor that 60 to 75% of you who come in here every morning are suffering from from pain or failure. There is a lot of crying that goes on. A lot of you have lost loved ones this past year. We've lost a lot of saints in the church this year. And some of you have been horribly sick. Why would we not lament that? Why would we not acknowledge that as a community of God's people? See, I know what happens when you bottle that stuff up. I know what happens when you keep those feelings inside of you because I've done it. And I can tell you, it leads to depression and anxiety and fear. In fact, some believe that our denial and our distraction around this issue has led to widespread uh, addictions and depression. That addiction preoccupies us so we don't have to deal with our feelings of of loss. And addiction comes in lots of different forms. And depression, some say, may be the result of years of refusing to deal with our loss, with death, with failure and disappointment. In fact, one of my favorite writers, Eugene Peterson, wrote this. He said, year by year, as we deny and as we avoid the pains and the losses, the rejections and the frustrations, we become less And less trivial and trivializing empty shelves with smiley faces painted on the exterior. We have to learn to lament, and David does so. David refuses to bottle up his feelings. I mean, Psalm 13 is only six verses long, but it's it's packed with angry words. We don't know exactly the specific circumstances of the psalm. Whether or not David blames God for the cause of his grief, he certainly holds God responsible for its perpetuation, doesn't he? How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? And so it's not that David worries that he has merely slipped God's mind momentarily. He is worried that God is deliberately ignoring him. How oh. Are you hiding from me, God? How long are you going to let my enemy triumph over me? I mean, it's bad enough when life takes a sudden turn for the worse, but this isn't going away for David. Week after week, month after month, year after year he is struggling with this. How long, O Lord, he says? I don't want to discourage you, but the Israelites cried out to God in their slavery in Egypt for how long, do you remember? 430 years, (laughs) and it didn't change. Job cried out because he didn't get better. In fact, it got worse. Paul, with his thorn in the flesh, he called it a messenger of Satan because it wouldn't change. What's yours today? What circumstances in your life doesn't change? You wrestle with it, you pray about it, you ask about it, but it goes on and on and on, and there seems to be no solution. Unanswered prayers. We know God answers prayers. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes wait. But when that pain goes on for years, that prayer feels unanswered. And that's when it becomes a problem for us. That's, That's what David is wrestling with. God wasn't answering. Abandonment. How long will you hide your face from me? That's David's biggest fear in this psalm is that God is turning his face away from him. You see, the Israelites believed That when the face of the Lord was turned towards you, it was a sign of God's acceptance. It was a a sign of of blessing. It was a sign of God's identification with you. In fact, in number six, we have recorded the blessing that God gave to uh, the high priest Aaron to bless the people with. You know this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to what? Shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you listen and give you peace. That's what David is wrestling with. Has God turned his face away from him? Was his life with God over? Was God withdrawing his blessing? Were doubts creeping into David's mind like, like, is God's word not true? Does God not love me after all? Do my prayers mean nothing to him? Is this whole This whole life of faith, just a hoax and a fake. David is admitting that there are some disturbing realities for the people of faith in this world, that there are times when life is hard and there are no quick answers and there are no easy fixes. Look on me, David begs, almost demands That God turn his face toward him again for fear that if God doesn't look upon him, that he will die physically. And that's his biggest fear. And that's that's our biggest fear. Nothing is there that we fear more in this world than death. And then verse 5. There's this remarkable change. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. What? (laughs) Is is David manic-depressive? How can he so quickly go from lament to praise? I doubt if David's emotions had suddenly changed. I can't imagine that David suddenly felt like praising God. Why the sudden change? How is David able to praise God in the midst of this lament? And I think it's because praise is grounded in the very nature of God. Uh, I want you to notice that there are three attributes of God that enables David to praise Him. He, me- he names them: God's unfailing love, God's salvation. And then God's goodness. Let's unpack these just for a moment. First of all, David trusts in God's unfailing love. It never fails. God's love will never let him down, even when we don't deserve it. One of the most famous sermons uh, ever preached was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was written in the 1700s, I believe, in Massachusetts. And it's a remarkable sermon that he, that he preached to stir his complacent congregation And in it, Edwards warns his audience that they are in danger of being cast into hell at any moment. And he says this, your wickedness makes you as it were heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God would let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and your best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have of holding back a falling rock. (laughs) The picture Edwards paints for his congregation here is not a pretty one. He says were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God the earth would not bear you one moment for you are a burden to it. Edwards asks the question why doesn't God just let us go? What is stopping us from that terrible descent? Well David tells us it's God's unfailing love. This is the committed love of God that compels him to keep his promises even when we do not keep our promises. It is faithful love that is oftentimes expressed in the form of, of covenant. And amazingly, it's an attribute of God's faithfulness that is oftentimes emphasized in contexts where God's people have been unfaithful. In Exodus 33, after Israel has committed the great sin of worshiping uh, the golden calf, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And the Lord says to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. You know the story, the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of a rock covered him up with his hand, and then when he passes by Moses, he gives his covenant promise. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You see, like Moses, we too come to see God's glory. And we see it in his grace in stark contrast to our own sin and rebellion. We see his, his patience displayed in stark relief over and against our impatience. We see his compassion in contrast to our self-centeredness and our narcissism. Uh, We sometimes wake up in the morning with a, a sense of cold indifference towards the love of our life, yet he demonstrates his unfailing love in unexpected and undeserved ways all day long. It's not a pretty lesson. It's a hard lesson, at least in what it reveals to us about ourselves. But it is a necessary one to remind us of God's unfailing love. Secondly, David praises God because of his salvation. You see, in the Old Testament, the word salvation means to rescue from an enemy or for trouble or from illness. A savior is somebody who rescues, and so David believes that he will be rescued from his enemies, from sorrow and from anxious thoughts and from fear of death in a word that he'll be restored to wholeness. That's that Hebrew word, shalom. Well, in Luke 17, Jesus is on his way south to Jerusalem. And he is near Samaria and he passes through a village and ten men who had leprosy met him there. The Bible says they stood at a distance and they cried out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. You see, they had to keep their distance for a couple reasons. First of all, because they were contagious. But secondly, because they were religiously unclean. So they were isolated from the community and if someone came close to you, you're required to cry out, unclean, stay away from me. Well, these ten lepers hear that a rabbi is coming to their little village and so, and it was rumored that he could heal people and so they're very excited. And As Jesus passes them by, they cry out, he hears them. And all he says to them, it's kind of strange, he just says, go and show yourself to the priests. That may seem like a strange response to us, but the lepers knew exactly what that meant, you see. Because in the Hebrew Scriptures, if you were healed of leprosy, the first thing you were to do was to to go to the priest to show him the physical evidence that you had been healed of the skin disease. And if the priest verified that it was gone, then you could be pronounced clean and you could be readmitted back into your village, into your society. And so, as the lepers are leaving Jesus and going to find the priest, something happens. Verse 14 says, And as they went, as they were going, they were made clean. They were healed, all ten of them. This dreaded disease was gone. Their biggest prayer had been answered. It was a dream come true. When they realize this, one of the ten responds differently than the others. He returns to Jesus and the Bible says that he was praising God with a loud voice. (laughs) I mean, he's happy. And he prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him over and over again. And Luke makes mention of the fact that he was a Samaritan. And in verse 17, Jesus asked the question, "Were, were not all ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus seems kind of dumbfounded, doesn't he? You were in deep distress. Your life was basically nothing. You cried out for help, and I answered when nobody else would. Why did only this Samaritan come back to say thanks? Now, I doubt that the other nine were bad guys. They're probably just thinking, man, I want to go home. I want to see my wife. I want to hug my kids. I want to see if I can get my old job back again. For whatever reason, they don't bother to come back and to thank their Savior, except for the one. Jesus said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Again, that word well, there's the word shalom. See, the Samaritan's expression of praise and gratitude seems to indicate that something has happened to this one man's heart that there has been a conversion that's been caused by his faith. His faith has, has opened his eyes to the reality of, of the one who is standing there in front of him, his Savior, his, his Redeemer, his Lord. All the other nine were physically healed. But the grateful Samaritan has received so much more. His praise, his gratefulness has brought him into the very kingdom of God. And then lastly, David praises God because of his goodness. Isn't that amazing? Despite all that's happened to David, he says he will sing praises to God because God is good. He's a God who is near, not a God who is far away. He's a God who listens, not a God who turns a deaf ear. He's a God who watches, not a God who closes his eyes to what is going on around him. And so in short, I can expect God to act in a way that is consistent with His very nature. I can expect Him to keep His promises. I can expect God to hold me up when I stumble. I can expect Him to give me what I need when I need it. I can expect Him to be, to be open-handed with me and sensitive to my pain. I can expect God to always do the right thing, to deal with me in love, to be near me when I cry. I can expect God to save me, and God, for His part, can expect something from me in return my gratitude, and my praise. You see, I think the key word here in Psalm 13 is trust. David has decided to trust in God's promises. I believe it was trust that enabled David to complain in the first place to God. It was because he knew God's love would never fail him, that he had the courage to express his intense Negative emotions to God in the first place. Folks, I have to admit that sometimes I come here on a Sunday morning and I don't feel like praising the Lord. There are times that I come here on Sunday morning and I don't feel like singing to the Lord. There are times I come here on Sunday morning and I don't feel like praying. And when I don't feel like it, I think, well, Mark, you must be a hypocrite. And there's nothing I despise more than hypocrisy. But here's what I've discovered. I don't change my feelings to change my behavior. I change my behavior to change my feelings. And so I choose to worship the Lord, even when I don't feel like it. And in so doing, I find my feelings begin to change. Neurolinguistics is a field of psychology, and they've discovered a link between the body posture and your mood. Now this is probably no surprise to you, but slump over and let your shoulders drop and look at the floor and try to have happy thoughts. You don't have to do it now, but try it sometime today. the day. Now throw back your shoulders and, and look upwards and try to have a sad thought. It, it's hard to do. And so when I come to worship, and, and I've had a rough week, and I'm not in the mood for worship and, and praise and, and, and singing, well, then I go ahead and I do it anyhow. I praise the Lord, and I find that my feelings follow. You see, throughout the Psalms, God's people are encouraged to lift up their hands in the sanctuary and to lift up their voice and to sing and, and, and to lift up their eyes to the Lord. And so you married folks those of you who, who on your way to church today, you had a fight with your spouse, it doesn't matter. You're here now, praise the Lord. You teenagers who got home last night past your curfew and now you're grounded, it doesn't matter. You're here now, praise the Lord. Those of you who are working, you had a bad work week and sales weren't what they were supposed to be. It doesn't matter, you're here now, praise the Lord. Am I suggesting you deny reality? No. I'm suggesting that you move to a higher reality. You see, praise is all a response to all that God has done for us and expresses our gratitude for all of his gifts, all of our gifts, our spouses, our kids, our jobs, for life abundant and life eternal, for our our homes here and our home in heaven. Praise happens as you and I, as we travel the way of faith in all kinds of weather and all kinds of circumstances and all sorts of trials, as we move through the agony that will be ours and is ours, and find ourselves on the other side of ecstasy. Let's pray. Oh God, infuse us with the Holy Spirit of joy and peace. Turn, O oh God, your face towards us. Let us feel your pleasure and delight in your creation. And give us the ability, O oh God, in the midst of our trying times, to give you thanks. For you are, as David said, a great God. And greatly to be praised.